0: What up, guys and girls? It's Bobby. And Sean. Happy Easter. Happy Easter, everybody. Uh, For those of you that believe in Christianity and the Judeo-Christian values, or religions, I guess, uh, happy Easter, happy Passover for those Jews. Uh, And I think that's it for the religious holidays in this time period. And for those
1: of you that just want an excuse to eat chocolate.
0: Oh, dude. I ate an entire bag of Reese's eggs the other day. It was like last week. It was delicious. But now I feel like I'm like a huge fat piece of shit after this week.
1: Oh, that's not, uh, that's not preferable to, to go through that many eggs in one sitting.
0: Well, I will say it was like a period of like a week. So it wasn't like I just sat there on the couch going through an entire bag of Reese's eggs. So it was like maybe like three or four a day for like a week straight.
1: That's better. Dan and I had that problem. Uh, whenever I go shopping, uh, this is when we're in the city, my roommate, Mm -hmm. Dan, like, you can tell who does the weekly shopping because I'll be like, I'm not buying anything. If I buy sweets, I, I know I'm gonna find myself at the end of the night being like, I can have one. Yeah. Uh, if I can have one, I can have two. And then like a week later, Dan's like, dude, I didn't touch the chocolate. I'm just like, Shit, that was all me. Bad uh, Sean. Very bad.
0: Dude, I'm the same way. Like when I go shopping with or go shopping with Christina, like uh I have to watch what I pick up because I've I know that if I get like candy or sweets it's gonna be me that eats it all so like i always buy it for the two of us but then it ends yeah. up being me eating all of it which uh so oh, now yeah. i'm just trying to like
1: you know it's awful thin mints like girl scout season i hate girl scouts i know, not like you, you're gonna stand out there you're gonna sell these awesome cookies it's nothing to do with your salesmanship it's just strictly the taste that i'm after and dan again like i don't know where you pick this stuff up in new york city but dan will always come back and be like oh i've got girl scout cookies the samoas the thin mints mm. like even the shittier lemon things i'll go through the entire box in one sitting and then i'm just like dan like don't do this to me man like he's like oh i put them in the freezer it's like oh they're so much better now <laughs> like stop this like this is really frustrating Did it's, it's i always, eat it all I've i like awful impulse control
0: no oh yeah no i'm the same way it's like uh I just I feel because I always feel bad when like girls cookies or Girl Scouts are like, hey sir, you're gonna buy some cookies? You want some buy some Girl Scout cookies? I'm like, ah, oh, I really I really shouldn't, but your product is too good. And then they always sell them at my train station. So when I come home from school, they they're sitting at like inside the train station selling them. So it's like it's like you have to like stop and buy them. Like you can't not yeah. buy them.
1: Yeah, and it's no longer. Oh, sorry, ladies, I don't have cash on me. It's like, well, I've got this little chip that plugs into the bottom of my iPhone, and you can just swipe away. Or, you know, Apple Pay. Me, it's like, God, we are making.
0: I know. M- making I was, this really difficult. I was bitching about uh, there. That is, they had this one Girl Scout uh, troop there that are selling cookies, and then they didn't accept Venmo or didn't have any like you know cash app or any of those like digital money transfer th- devices. And I was like come on, man, like, if you really wanted my business, you would have accepted this Venmo, but now, because I don't have cash, I can't give you cash.
1: It's the easy way. I was, uh, I'm always, like, hesitant, though, of people, like, you know, selling stuff and their wares on the side of the road. Like, Girl Scouts are one of the things I probably have more faith towards. I think if, at any point, you wear a vest, I'm just naturally going to trust you. Home Depot, Mm. Lowe's, Girl Scouts, like, That's probably it. I don't know who else wears a vest that I would trust. Boy Scouts? No. (laughs) Absolutely not. I went to a Boy Scout meeting when I lived in Germany. Uh, My parents were stationed at Grafenbier, and we had, like, family friends uh, that had, like, a, you know, Boy Scout troop, whatever they call themselves, that they were attached to. And I remember my dad being like, all right, like, we'll go check it out. I remember standing around with these like young boy scouts that were my age and you know they're teaching a lot of like survival stuff but I remember just going you know my dad can teach me all this as it is like I don't need some stranger's father to teach me how to tie a bowline I don't need some stranger to you know instill in me those virtues of helping the elderly cross the street I was like this just seems like a thing for kids that don't have like a strong i'm not saying like a strong father figure but Mm. a a father that has any sort of those skills already developed like i feel like a lot of what the boy scouts are developing are things that your dad should probably be able to teach you and anything more than that just go into the military i mean why why go halfway you know you 12 year old 12 year old punk just why don't you do the whole do the
0: real thing just enlist just enlist yeah just enlist
1: yeah, no, I, but I never did the Boy Scouts. I didn't like popcorn. And I attributed popcorn and like candied popcorn, which is like another discussion we can have, just probably the most awful dessert of any dessert. Um, uh, yeah, I just, it was like, okay, Girl Scouts got cookies, Boy Scouts got shitty caramel popcorn. Yeah, I'm shitty not, popcorn. not into it. So because of that, I never, uh, the Boy Scouts were never able, able to draft me. You know, that's how I think it came down.
0: Yeah, I remember, I think I had like a pretty similar experience in Cub Scouts. Like my parents signed me up for Cub Scouts when I was like five or six. And I just remember going to like Cub Scout camp and just being like, what the fuck is going on? Like, who are these people? Like, why All are they-
1: really, really unathletic kids, though. Like, it's not like you found the Boy Scouts were the same kids you were playing baseball, football, hockey, and soccer with. They were like the weird kids that got into like, uh, what is it, whittling? Is that what we we play with wood? Mm-hmm like, at too young of an age, and we're like, I made a steak. You're like, okay, stay the fuck away from me. And then, like, later, as you get into high school, those kids that didn't get out of Boy Scouts, either one, ended up at West Point, uh, or two, were, like, bragging about how many badges they had on their vests and that. Or, no, they had the sash. Boy
0: Scouts had the sash. No, Girl Scouts had the sash.
1: No, the Boy Scouts had that big, like, red sash, you know, like like a South American dictator with all of their, like... You know, like I bagged groceries and I tied a knot and I started a fire. I thought that was the in vest in your neighbor's house. No, I think it's. I think the Girl Scouts put theirs on a vest. The Boy Scouts put it on a sash. Are you sure? Again, I'm not a subject matter expert, Bobby. I went to one Boy Scout meeting. You apparently were a Cub Scout.
0: That's true. I was and Bob a West Scout. Pointer.
1: I just think that. Uh, I'm, okay, here's another thing. How many of your classmates at West Point do you think were like Eagle Scouts?
0: Ten percent. Easy. Ten percent easy. Look at that. Easily ten percent. If I think about the statistic, might actually be higher or higher of like Eagle Scouts, like West Point. I'm actually kind of curious now. Let's see. Let's see, Eagle Scout West Point. But like the the Boy Scouts, I guess, like love West Pointers. Uh, oh, I, I, 2000... you know, it goes back to a
1: like a service type thing.
0: So hold on. In 2017 they had 239 Eagle Scouts which was 20% of the class was Eagle Scouts. Jesus. And that's comparable to Navy has 109 Eagle Scouts which is 11.9% and Air Force Academy has 425 Eagle Scouts which is 10%. Wow.
1: So Air Force has more but has a lower per capita.
0: I think they just, uh, depending on how they do the statistics, I think the for Air Force is the entire Air Force Academy, whereas for West Point, it was just for that one, uh, one class.
1: Huh. That's pretty impressive. I mean, like, it takes a long time to become an Eagle Scout and, like, doing stuff that I've never had any interest in doing in my entire life. Yeah, so, like-, like, good on you if you got it, but... I. Mm-mm. yeah like
0: i see the, a lot of utility from it and i think i can see like the skills that you know boy scouts slash uh eagle scouts would teach you like you know perseverance dedication you know all the stuff that we talk about so i think that you know there's probably some pretty good pretty good uh carryover or good like uh leadership skills or traits that you can pick up in eagle scouts that would transfer directly over i think but it doesn't sh- doesn't excuse the fact that the majority of Boy Scouts that I knew were weird as shit. Like you said.
1: Yeah. Like, and like even the ones that I know that joined the army subsequently, like you could usually spot like, especially, you know, like everyone knows that infantry officer that, you know, probably should not have gone infantry, but they thought it was the coolest, most who thing to do. Like, uh, there was a guy I went to LDAC with and we had, you know, like the, the, rubber m60 because they can't give us like real machine guns and yeah and uh, uh, this guy was that like he was crying carrying this on a rock it was like just a 10k rock and we're like just give it to us and then he ended up being a boy scout and it was just like god like there's too many there's there's too much of a of an overlap between like the weirdos that i knew in school growing up Mm-hmm. and then like the infantry officers and you're like you just know like you just know when you look at somebody you're like boy scouts yeah yeah i didn't
0: i didn't think of sport but definitely boy scouts it's like boy scouts and homeschooling oh yeah, they're, they're sc- <laughs> 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 like, yeah. Do- i remember like yeah it was for sure like meeting some people and be like you're a little weird. You must have been either homeschooled or had some Boy Scouts or did something kind of weird. And that usually yeah. it was pretty weird. <laughs> Class
1: valedictorian, the only person you're competing against is your 12 year old sister.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely some weird, weird people. Uh, yeah, those are probably
1: the ones laughing right now, though, where they're like, my kid's not getting Corona. Like, I didn't send them to, like you know, public school with the rest true. of the filth.
0: It's very interesting. I always kind of wonder about, you know, with my kids, how education is going to work out with them that's one thing that's like always in the back of my mind because like thinking back and looking back on how i was raised and seeing like what my parents did or did not do to to kind of raise me it's always been kind of interesting kind of thinking about like how i can you know reset the same condition or set the same conditions for my kids growing up you know because i always that's one thing i always wonder about like how i'm gonna raise my kids you know
1: Exactly. I think I will try to do the same thing my parents did. They never forced the military on me. In fact, Mm. it was like, I think, quite the opposite uh, after 9-11 and and growing up in the D.C. area. But I always had like a very strong uh, patriotic feel just growing up on military bases uh, in Germany and in the States. Um, So I don't know how I'll be able to replicate that Mm -hmm. now being out of the military, but I still want the same thing, like hard work. I know for sure I'm not enrolling kids in private school. Um, I think I was really well prepared for both military service and in general, just being like a good dude by going to public schools and meeting kids from all different backgrounds, uh, both like socioeconomically Um, and then because DC is like a huge melting pot, I think my middle school had like over a hundred nations represented Mm -hmm. alone. Uh, And then the high school was even more so like learning about, you know, all the individuals that were from the African continent, uh, you know, all parts of Asia, Europe, South America. I mean, it was like, you know, we're, we're a great country because of all these, you know, people that come here and like, just add a little bit, uh, to the to the national quilt and so like that made me really proud to be an american and be able to represent that you know as a as a military officer and and serve them was was like a huge privilege so i want that too for my kids so wherever i live has to be like multicultural and it can't be just like this vanilla flavor bean because then i don't think that the kids grow up with a really good appreciation for what america truly is
0: yeah i was gonna say like uh i think both you and i have had kind of similar experiences growing up because we both grew up kind of on the east coast i mean besides you with the growing up abroad uh, with your dad in the army but then once you guys like settled uh you said you guys settled on the east coast so i definitely think there's a little bit of vibe that you get on the east coast so you don't really get on kind of anywhere else you know because like with right. the in the northeast you get like all like you said the multinational like all these immigrants as well but then like in the rest of the country it's kind of interesting too like uh i like to think about you know all the army traveling that we've done, uh, living like across the country, like for you living in Texas, Georgia, <clears throat> and then uh, then Colorado, and then I did Washington State, Oklahoma, and then Georgia too. So it's like, as far it's very interesting to me seeing how like different, I guess areas regions operate. Like the Northeast yep. has such a different feel from it from like the South from the from Texas from the, the Northwest. It's just it's just interesting and seeing how, uh, where you're raised has such an impact on how you grow up too.
1: No, absolutely! And we've talked about it so many times, with the the general level of ignorance that some of you know our you know countrymen have towards uh, immigrants and being you know, serving more as an obstacle to bringing in someone and making them feel welcome. And growing up in D.C., I think we had two, there were two national walkouts um, for uh, individuals uh, and then friends and families uh, from, you know, South America and Central America because it was during the time, I think, when the whole um, Dreamers plan was being introduced. Uh, It was like the transitionary period uh, between, Uh, President Bush and President Obama, and then going through those steps to make, you know, these kids who didn't have an option whether or not they were going to come into this country legally or illegally, but giving them an opportunity to be Americans and making this pathway to citizenship. Like, from a very young age, like, I understood what was at risk for these individuals and why it was so important to them to be uh, American. And there were so many kids... Even in my high school, it wasn't like everyone was supportive, Um, but we had a lot of individuals that were against the idea of a pathway to citizenship, just saying, no, you broke the law, you have to go back and come back. It's like, that's just so inefficient. Like, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: if these people want to come back and risk it all, like, that's, yeah, obviously they would do that time in and time out, but they're already here making the best of it. And their kids are now, you know, at, at public schools, you know, graduating as valedictorians, taking IB and AP. It's like we're already better off because in six or seven years when they enter the workforce it's going to be fantastic because not only do you have someone that has like a different background you're going to have someone that's going to be able to speak at least two languages which is going to be better for business like at the end of the day if you're trying to make money if you have people that can communicate with other people that maybe don't have as a proficient mastery of the english language you're still going to get that business coming in so it's just like it's I don't know, I I appreciate uh, the struggles that people go through in order to get a better life here, and I was really happy, again, that I got to be raised around that environment and understand, you know, what so many people did to become American. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely, like, a very sobering or kind of, um, you know, just experience that a lot of people don't really appreciate uh, growing up in America, because I feel like, uh, I mean... I guess you got the experience because you grew up kind of overseas and then me, like my parents were immigrants. So I was the first generation American too. So I, I wonder like how much of that gets lost over the years and over the generations. Cause like you think about every immigrant group in America has always faced like a great deal of prejudice going back to, you know, to Columbus and like the early settlers um, through like the Italians, the Irish, you know, you know, Say Asian like, yeah, Americans the Asian over Americans, on the West yeah.
1: Coast, helping build the the Transcontinental Railroad.
0: Mm-hmm. But it's like, and there's there's a
1: lot that immigrants have done for this country.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing that I think that people forget is like, you know, no one in America is really an American. You know, it's only by you coming here, like your, your forefathers, your your ancestors coming here, that makes you American. Like that's what makes you American, just being born in America. And then I think a lot of people yeah. forget, like, the um, – kind of the racism and prejudice that the early immigrants face, like, you know, like the Irish in the 30s and 20s and then the Italians in the 40s and seeing how, how much, uh, like, prejudice they face. And then, they like, you forget, you forget that your ancestors faced those prejudices, so then you, you know, you, you feel threatened by, like, an, uh, new immigrants coming in that are trying to, you know, erode your rights as an American
1: and I think a lot of that comes down to, like, like you said, like just straight racism. We look back to when, thirteenth, uh, fourteenth, and fifteenth amendment were all passed post Civil War during the Reconstruction period, and the the amendments clearly articulate that we're not going to have like any more slavery. We're giving everyone equal protection under the law, and then we're going to establish like general voting rights for everyone. And then we still have to go through. Uh, the suffrage movement. But in the like 70 years between the end of, of this era um, to like Brown v. Board of Education to the Civil Rights Acts in the 1960s, like, we couldn't even use those amendments to create the freedoms for individuals that weren't uh, white because it had to be a state-level... Um, like, segregation, a discriminatory act act in order for anyone to to have actually violated those constitutional amendments. So, like, you know, businesses could still segregate and be prejudicial based on their clients without ever violating the Constitution because you had to just have such words articulated and drafted. And so, like, America has an incredibly long history with racism. It's like, we're eventually going to get there. Like, I hope by 2030, 2040, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about today just seems, like, incredibly archaic. And, like, how did we ever, like, as a country, take 40 years to get to, like, the point where everyone is welcome, everyone's providing some utility to the country, and, you know, we're just better off.
0: I think it's very interesting when you talk about, like, the racism, too, coming from, like, post-Civil War until, like, the 1960s. If you think about it, that's like, you know... 50 or 60 years ago what people were still getting lynched by this the color of their skin. You know, people were getting lynched for that. So it's kind of yeah. crazy to think about.
1: Yeah, we had to use the Commerce Clause in the Constitution. It wasn't any specific amendment. It was Article 1, Section 8, uh, the Commerce Clause, uh, and then, you know, some other clauses that are in there. You got the Necessary and Proper Clause, the Supremacy Clause, which essentially says we're going to make it so that if you're being prejudicial against uh, any sort of race, ethnicity, religion, Um, you're taking away potential revenue for the national GDP. And if you do that, now we're going to take issue with it from a uh, legislative and a judicary um, position. And that's the only reason why we got over all of the civil rights issues. And, you know, it's still taken 40, 50 years for individuals to have been provided through, like, you know, the affirmative action cases to get, you know, almost like, a quasi-level playing field, but we still have generational divides between, you know, people that grew up in the 60s that are still alive and now their grandchildren, great-grandchildren that are hopefully living in a more, uh, you know, like a land of opportunity that they themselves had to fight for. So it's pretty it's pretty impressive if you look back at the last 100 years, like how this country has changed socially um, for, for the better.
0: Now, do you think that we're kind of getting the point where we're doing better in terms of uh, addressing, like, the systemic racism or prejudices that a lot of people face? Or do you think we're still kind of fighting the good fight?
1: No, I don't think we're – I mean, we're fighting the good fight and we're getting better, but you still have individuals that that question the rationale for it. Like, why do we need to have affirmative action? Well, it's like, okay – if we just go and say everyone is equal, there's no more slavery, that's just a really shallow approach to analyzing the disparities between uh, the races that were created by, you know, the Jim Crow era, by the civil rights era. And so there's still going to be generational gaps when we talk. When we look at, like, family wealth and being able to afford going to schools, being able to live in areas um, where, you know, you can protect uh, the living environment um, that you've, you know, signed a lease for or you purchased a home for because, you know, you're not being taken advantage of because you don't have as much of that family wealth that we just mentioned. So I don't think we're making like huge leaps and bounds, but I think we're, you know, incrementally getting closer to a point where like maybe by 2030, 2040 affirmative action won't be a thing um, because some of the, the gaps are, are much, you know, are, are, are closed um, um, essentially because we've given, you know, those opportunities to the families to, to catch up for, for, you know, generations. These white families were able to go to any school they wanted to and didn't have to worry about the financial burden to get there. The socioeconomic costs for their family while they were in, you know, high school and middle school to prepare themselves to go to college. I mean, there's like all these externalities that go into, like, affirmative action beyond just we say we're equal, so we must be equal.
0: Where did you start getting, uh, I guess, more aware or more, you know, woke, so to speak, of all these injustices that people face in our culture? I know, like, for me personally, I didn't start really understanding or really seeing, like, systemic racism or just health disparities, wealth disparities, um, until, like, I got to med school in the last couple of years that I started appreciating all the uh, lucky, or just by you know by the nature of how my parents were, I like appreciating how lucky that I was to be given all these things that I took for granted growing up in you know middle class suburban America. Whereas, you know, a lot of people that live in the urban environments are facing a lot more you know disparities and challenges that makes it harder to really you know be equal. Uh, like you talked about, when did you start start noticing that? Or start really appreciating or or, or picking up on that? Uh, not till probably at some like
1: it like beginning of when I was serving in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I had somewhat of blinders up uh, while I was at undergrad. Uh, high school, I, I had an idea of of what went into it, but it wasn't until I started like earning my own paycheck and realizing like how important it was to budget, and then not saying that having a dog is anything like having a child, but the costs that are involved, you know, as, as small as they may be with having a pet and you're like, holy crap. Like if I had to have a kid or if I had to have a kid, I sound like so crass when I say that if I had a child, um, the cost would be significantly higher. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well then all of a sudden the military stations you around the country. And it's not like outside of like going to Seattle, um, or maybe like hood near, uh, Austin. If you're not like near a major, metropolitan area most army installations are in in not such good parts of of the Mm. country i think financially speaking um so seeing you know what finance does to you know lower income individuals living outside of military installations and just now having an understanding going to afghanistan the first time being like i am so fortunate to be an american Mm -hmm. and then hearing the interpreters that are there that are struggling to get their visas approved to come over as you know refugees Um, I started getting a really good sense of like my privilege and then you know if you can make an impact you know do whatever you can then I think you you're almost obligated to because you've you've not had to experience those struggles growing up Uh, and so as like an American you should be helping out your fellow Americans.
0: Yeah I think that's a great point they bring up that lot that you didn't really understand privilege until you got to be able to see the disparities that you know from Afghanistan and other places I don't know like, me personally, I didn't really, I think I must have, like, I don't know, like, during the Army, I didn't really appreciate a lot of the disparities or, like, privileges that I had, and it wasn't until I got to med school that I really started seeing all the, or just appreciating all the prejudices or all the, you know, things going on, especially because being uh, my med school was in Camden, so in our school was pretty much founded with a mission to serve our community. So then, you know, we had to do required community service, uh, every year, uh, in our communities. And then, you know, I think looking back on it, it was like such a huge blessing in disguise. Cause like during going, going through it, I was like, this sucks. I have to do all this, all this time in community service where I could be studying and getting better grades and learning medicine better. But I think that, um, looking back on the last four years, it's like, it really kind of changed my worldview and really changed, you know, how I see things. And now I can really start, you know, understanding a lot of these, um, how like wealth disparities or health disparities have impacts on, you know, on your patient population or a lot of have these like down down downstream, like second and third order effects from being living in like an urban environment, you know, food deserts, these kind of things, access to, access to health access to education all these huge things that you know that i took for granted growing up going through high school you know west point in the army like i didn't really appreciate and understand how important it was like growing up where you're born and like what area code you're born into or what area code you live in can dictate your entire like life trajectory and it's crazy
1: it's unbelievable and when i got to law school the same thing um Because I tried to work with my interpreters in Afghanistan and making sure that at least their their visas or their refugee uh, applications went through and at least got approved by, you know, the first flag officer. Um, When I got to school, I volunteered with the Refugee Assistance Project where, like, you help out with interviews with a translator, making sure that all the information that goes to the attorney that represents these clients um, that are now in America awaiting, you know, the refugee status and to get green cards. Uh, takes place. Um, so doing that, I volunteered over the summer to go up for a day to help out a school in the Bronx as they were you know handing out backpacks and school gear. and like you see these young kids that I don't think have a huge understanding of like what kind of financial background their parents have. They're just incredibly happy kids. Mm-hmm. and you sit there and you're like, like damn, like it, it seems so very, simple if you just give back a little bit, whether it's time or your resources, like you can make a huge difference in someone's life at like a very young age. Um, with the COVID-19, I think they just came out with a study that said there's like a disparate impact on the African-American community with getting the virus and becoming more sick and the rate of hospitalizations and the mortality rate is increasing. You know, amongst that community compared to, you know, other communities within the United States. And it's like, why is that? You know, what what can we do? Because it's it's enough to acknowledge it. But if you don't do anything about it, it was one of the things that frustrates me. It's like I would love to run for public office, but I'm so frustrated by both parties, specifically like the Democratic Party, which I think I would probably lean towards and want to run and represent. Because it just seems like a lot of whining and complaining. And it's one of the things that you're told in the military, don't come to me with a problem, bring a solution too. And I never hear the solution. It's always either like a very far-fetched, very expensive solution that it's just not feasible, uh, nor would it be efficient for the country. Um, Or it's just straight complaining and whining. And you're like, Guys, there's a reason why Fox News like tries to tear you apart every single day I and mean, then other people don't even want to watch CNN or MSNBC because this, the problem with the media is that it's just it's like low-hanging fruit that they go after. Mm-hmm. And so it's super frustrating when you don't have representatives representing you in the Senate or in the House that actually have viable solutions long-term to these problems other than just throwing money at it. It, it, it blows my mind every single day I hear about a problem.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of my frustration with the issues that people face that um, it's I feel like people either fall in like two categories of of like people that you know respond to the news article, news stories like that about how African Americans are disproportionately affected by COVID nineteen. You have one group that's like, oh, you know, that's their fault. You know, it's their fault. It's not our fault. Yeah. It's their fault. And then you have the other group of people that it's like. There's something else going on, or like you know, there's there's something bigger at effect here, and I really hate when people are always like, oh, it's their fault. Like everyone has the same opportunities being in America, you know, everyone has the same opportunities to to wealth, health, and you know, life pursuit of happiness, whatever. But it's really not true, you know. I think that you've seen it too, and like I've definitely seen it uh, in Camden and working with these communities and like low income communities, and that there are huge disparities in not only in wealth but health um and i think it's very interesting that you bring up the whole african-americans being disproportionately affected because i think there's still like a population of doctors that don't believe in the social determinants of health like if you um i actually wrote about this in one of my papers for med school and that um there are some edu- like uh med school or medical educators or doctors that don't necessarily believe in teaching like social determinants of health Um, like where you live like where you're living like what race you are these are very things there are things that like play into how your health uh, that impact your health for example like living in the urban environment you have things like food deserts where you have don't have access to you know vegetables like to fruits and vegetables and fresh produce you know your closest uh, food source is like a corner store bodega so you get like you know like some some meat products to, and then maybe some fresh fruit occasionally and yep. then you have like the whole security aspect too of like you know people say that you know to be healthy just walk you know it's, it's that easy to lose weight just go outside and walk but there's like whole populations where you that you can't go outside and walk around because you live in like an inner city like you say you live in like in Camden, new jersey where you're on the corner if you walk to the corner you have guys like corner boys like selling you know drugs and you have shootouts like once a week, there, you know, so you can't really say that that it's just that easy to, to lose weight. Just eat better and walk, because not everybody has the ability to eat better, and not everybody has the, no. the, the access to to like physical fitness that that we take for granted a lot of the time. So I really, so that's one of my my big pet peeves is that people are unable to empathize or unable to see the other party and how the other party lives, and they just you know just chalk it up to flat out ignorance or laziness or stupidity where there's a lot more at play um, than just that. And it's it's always worse in, like, the immigrant communities, too. Like, in Camden, you have all these, like, Hispanic uh, immigrant communities that, you know, people love to shit on because, you know, they're here illegally, but, you know, they're not the healthiest because they can't be healthy. And then people just shit on them because, they, oh, they don't know any better. You know, they're not smart enough to, right. to, to live better.
1: Right. And then you, you deal with stuff we talk about, security, and, like, all those externalities that – We talked about a little bit earlier with, you know, these kids growing up in elementary school, middle school, high school, preparing to even potentially enroll in a university. And like if if your parents aren't educated or have like a real firm understanding of like an implied warranty of habitability, the basic things that your landlord should take. Um, control on the premises for it and ensure that you know that it's a livable environment and that they'll fix stuff. Instead, they'll be like, no, like, we're like we're gonna waive that which you can't waive. Like you can't waive habitability. You can't say, okay, because this window's broken, I'm gonna cut rent off a um, hundred bucks for the month, but I'm not gonna fix it. Like that's something you can't do. But if you don't know anything about that you know, all of a sudden now you're growing up for how many years with a broken window? When it's cold out, when it's hot out, you've got to deal with that. Like, can you imagine trying to study in that environment and feel secure in that environment and then to go off to college and not be worrying about your parents or your other brothers and sisters? Like, that's stuff that you have to take into account and what that does to your stress level. We've talked about what stress does to your body trying to lose weight and trying trying to stay fit. Like, all these things have a compounding effect. And if we don't acknowledge them, then um, you know, we're, we're doing a disservice to the other Americans. I, I would recommend people go watch the Netflix thing. I think it's called Dirty Money, where they look at like Jared Kushner, he, his family's all, you know, realty, royalty in the New York, New Jersey area, and how badly tenants are treated and taken advantage of. It's like, think of that on just a much larger scale for decades, for one particular class of Americans. And then try to then argue with me that that doesn't have a a lasting effect more than just two or three years like that is going to be generational Mm -hmm. and so that's why you have to have social programs that are built in to ensure that americans are given an opportunity to like get out of their social status you know and and to make whatever they want of themselves in this country
0: not to mention like all the legal concerns that you get to living in such a place like having access to legal representation i think is a huge thing that you probably could speak a lot better about but i love like uh hearing stories of some of the people that i knew uh like that volunteered with in med school like some hearing some of their stories and some of the people you know getting arrested in camden for less than criminal offenses to put it that way and then being stuck in jail because they can't post bail because they can't don't have the financial you know stability to post bail to hire a good lawyer to defend them and then you contrast that with some of my other friends uh who who you know might have had some troubles with the law but because they were you know from fairly wealthy families or were or financially more stable and were able to get a lawyer that was able to represent to represent them it's just like you can it's very clear how you know having money uh affects outcomes in america That's yeah for kind sure
1: of and it's one of the reasons we you know we talked about before offline but like i'm super privileged in the fact that the military paid for my undergrad degree as part of like the rotc scholarship the gi bill uh is funding my law school degree so it's like i've got like other than some small loans just to like live on for the next couple years I've got a great opportunity to graduate law school with almost zero debt Mm -hmm. and like use the degree for what it's it's meant for. And I think what a law degree is meant for is like helping shape and define like the current legal system in the country and make sure that everyone has access to it. So it goes back to like Fordham's mottos in the service of others. You should use that law degree. And I almost wish that people like, you know, med school and law school, you have to do like a public service route for two years before you can even think about branching off and doing something like financially lucrative because it just defeats the purpose of having this really awesome tool at your disposal mm-hmm. to help a community instead of just kind of, you know, having that very selfish motivation to get them in the first place.
0: Yeah, I feel like um, almost frustrated, I guess, in that all these, like we have, you know that we both like you and i i feel kind of frustrated that i'm able to see and appreciate like all these disparities and how these things play like a huge factor in people's lives growing up but it's like there's no much there's not much that we can do about it you know that's the thing that I, I think i find myself being most frustrated with it's like what can what can we like you and me non-politicians not you know and people not people of like not decision makers put it that way we're not decision makers on how to like on, you know, set policy and stuff like that. Like what can we do to help, you know, help bring up other people that, you know, are, that need some help, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, fortunately we, we've got, you know, the, the monthly Cronus Fit, uh, drive going on where, uh, and we just got a great recommendation for the, I think next month, the shoes, um, for, for kids down in, in South America was one of the ones that someone recommended, like, you know, using our funds to make sure that, kids have access to just being able to wear shoes and just go to school. Like that's a really cool drive. Like stuff like that are, you know, opportunities that I think small businesses can take advantage of the resources that they have to to make a difference. But I think the biggest thing is just education. And the biggest one right now is what people love to talk about, especially with COVID nineteen is health insurance. I I heard a story where there was a dude that was about to be put onto a ventilator, and one of the last things that they said to the nurse before being, uh, is it intubated? Is that the Mm -hmm. correct term? Was like, who's going to pay for this? And, like, you can talk about the rising healthcare costs and then trying to reward doctors for getting medical degrees. It's like, well, if the cost of uh, medicine wasn't so expensive... um, then maybe that cost to the doctor visit wasn't wasn't going to be as much, which means that insurance would be more affordable, which means that hospitals didn't have to overcharge on basic services because of a fear of individuals coming in without insurance. I and mean, all of a sudden now these prices get dropped and then doctors don't have to be paying half a million dollars to get a degree Mm -hmm. you know in order to afford getting you know a three to five hundred thousand dollar salary like all those kind of things you just like incrementally can just chip away and then all of a sudden now you can go back to a country where like med school is not as expensive people can go and afford getting that degree because doctors are being paid a good wage because medical costs are down because people can enjoy like a single payer health option and i'm not advocating that we have to have one but that's just like i think a incremental way that you can really identify how more people are better served by a larger you know system rather than this like the competitive market
0: yeah it's always like i it's it's so hard for me because i feel like there are i can like options like a single health player system for all would help in some regards but i feel like they would also have some negative outcomes too from having a single payer system you know by having by not having a free market system, then you start losing some efficiency in the market by having, like, a, you know, by having a single-player system that makes uh, the market inefficient by not having c- competition, too, you know? But sometimes, I think that so- goes
1: back to the patents, though. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the big one for that would be uh, if individuals aren't going to get as much money from a drug they want to develop then they're not like incentivized to produce the drugs i would think the the impact would be on the future development of medicine not Mm -hmm. so much the access to care which for me would be the larger uh the larger pull to that kind of a system rather than the impacts like on a you know a pfizer who can afford to make a drug you know less expensively
0: Right. So I think that um, was one argument against the single payer system is that you lose some of the um, the benefits of having a free market and competition and being able to, you know, produce and, and invest in drugs that in the future that may not be profitable, but are essential for health. You know, so I think that's it's like there it's a very complex issue, too, that I am also not really sure what the right answer is, too. Like I'm coming from from the perspective that you are that you are, whereas, you know, the army is paid for my undergrad and for my med school as well. So like I have zero financial, you know, like worries, I guess, for the future because I know that I'm gonna be like financially stable for the rest of my life essentially. <clears throat> but that's just like my other peers, you know, coming out of med school with like a half million dollars in debt. Like, if we could move into like a single payer system, then you know my peers that have already poured the 300,000 dollars 500,000 of money for tuition like where do they get their return from for their financial right. stability and that's like the hard thing to the kind of weigh because luckily i i've been like lucky enough not to not have to not owe any a single dollar towards my education but a lot of my peers owe like half a million dollars towards their future um careers so like if they every dollar they lose in you know as a physician they're losing as you know paying back on the loans too so maybe and,
1: and, and school costs though, have gone up like astronomically it's not even just law schools or med schools now i mean the like law school at, at fordham full-time is like 62k mm-hmm. a year of undergrad at like lehigh university right now i think is like 62 to sixty four thousand dollars. like how is that how does that make any sense to anyone? Like the, what I'm learning in this one year of law school, I would say is like 10 times more useful than what I learned at a single year at Lehigh and undergrad for mm-hmm. basic classes with, you know, English. And you've got to do a math class and you've got to do like, you know, your social sciences before you start moving on to your major. Like that makes zero sense. Like education, the educational, Uh, costs right now in this country have to be something that's addressed, too. It's not like so all these things that we talk about, it's like there's all these tangential topics, but they all come back to Mm -hmm. like rising costs that don't need to rise. Like we just I think it's just like an arbitrary increase, like the, the costs for schools are going up significantly higher than our basic inflation is in this country. Like school should be half the cost of what it is now because the dollar is not like three hundred thousand times more expensive than it was in the seventies. Like that just makes it makes zero sense how how schools get away with that.
0: So what do you think is causing that? Because in my mind, looking because I think you know, there's a reason why things happen. So like, there's probably a reason why health or education's rising. And I in my mind it goes back to like big businesses or like the money that comes from the financial aspect that comes from student loans, because like, you know, for sure, the, the, the college, the universities don't really profit that much from your tuition. Like as far as tuition goes, like that's a drop in the bucket for a lot of school endowments. Right.
1: But they have huge endowments now. I I think like when I was at undergrad, someone said like the endowment was over a billion dollars at Lehigh uh, or, or several hundreds of millions of dollars. Like why? What, like, it's not like we're getting a new building every other year. It's not like we're getting uh, Chef Bobby Flay to come and, and cook our daily meals. Like, I don't see how the school has radically changed from when I was an undergrad there first in 2007 to now going into 2021. Like, it's not like I get a fucking update in a brochure saying, hey, every single person has a tempur bed. And uh, everyone's rolling around on scooters and we've actually got hoverboards uh, that are being created because we've invested all this money it's like the education's the exact same and the campus hasn't been updated significantly so where's all this money going
0: mm-hmm. to and that's what, that's like my thing too is like the endowments a lot of these universities have like I think Harvard's like endowments like seven billion dollars like do you think paying your what thirty thousand dollars a year or whatever it is for tuition is really that like they they don't need your tuition to, to run a university so it's no, just like and they're only really
1: doing it because they want to look prestigious mm-hmm. like if you look at all the like the top private schools in the country they typically have incredibly expensive programs both undergrad and graduate and so people automatically assume that if you're going to one of these private schools where you're shelling out 60 70k a year your return on that investment will be significantly higher than the kid that goes to just like the state school mm-hmm. um, you know if i go to UVA, like in-state, I think it was like 13 or 17 K back when I was looking and applying versus at the time, I think Lehigh was like 54 K and the draw for Lehigh was one ROTC was going to cover it, but it's like, oh, you're right here, like New York City, Philadelphia, like you're going to get these big jobs with all these, you know, big firms and you're becoming out of school, making 150, 160 K. So that's why you're paying more because, We've got those connections. Like, I just think it's like a bullshit marketing ploy now. Mm -hmm. The higher the education, the more return on investment.
0: Yeah, and it's just like, yeah, the whole education system in America is also a huge. I feel like a huge issue too, Um, especially when it comes down to like student loans too. Because I think there's got to be something in the background between like the student loan companies and like the like the school administrators. There's got to be something, some kind of like kickback programs going on. Because, I mean. Like, increasing tuition doesn't really benefit anybody when it comes to this besides the people that pay for it, e.g., like, you know, Sally Mae, Sally Mac, all those large, you know, companies that lend all this money to student loans. So I think that's, that's like, the only, like, benefit or party that's getting anything benefit from the higher tuition costs.
1: Well, I think all the the banks got out of lending. I think it's all now, like, government where you fill out, you know, like, every year you have to refill out your FAFSA and then Mm -hmm. you have to – reapplied for financial aid because they were so concerned with big businesses just providing loans. But then the other one that, like, Betsy DeVos has taken a lot of heat for is there's a lot of these for-profit schools. And I think every school is for-profit at Mm. this point. There's no, like, true, like, public interest school out there. But, you know, your DeVries, your University of Phoenix is, like, these schools are popping up. They're not accredited. People are taking classes and like they're being told you can get your undergrad degree while working at the same time and now they're taking out these huge costs and then those schools are just crashing because nobody's graduating from them and getting those jobs that significantly increase their salary than before you know they even enrolled um and so like there's that huge issue because they originally the uh, department of education could give people like an f like this school sucks like we're not going to give any loans for people to go here until they get their shit together and then like, Betsy DeVos cut that program because she's like, no, like, schools need to be fighting it out for who's, like, ranked number one and who's accredited. It's like, no, like, we got to do something as a country to make sure that at the end of the day, the government can check in on you and say you are not providing the essential services that you're getting tax breaks for as, like, a school and, two that we're providing students these very expensive uh, loans for because you're not, you're not improving their lives after they graduate. Like, that's the kind of stuff the government needs to be able to step in and go stop it.
0: What about, like, I feel like that's a huge, like, a perfect parallel into, like, the military uh, military degrees or, like, you know, the military, you know, online colleges that everyone does.
1: Yeah, I think it's cool that, what was it called? Uh, uh, it was that really shitty uh, progressive spinoff that we always used to see on AFN where it was, like, your klep gun college-level entry program. Yeah, it was on AFN. and It would show, like, some soldier standing there and then a, a fake... Um, who's the chick from Progressive? The one that's, like... She's got the, the short brown hair. She wears, like, the apron. Flow? Flow, yeah. It was, like, a fake flow and would come up with this, like, gun and be like, this is your clep gun. And the guy's like, oh, I deployed six times and uh, I took, like, a, a writing course. And they're like, boom, college English, done. Chick-chink. And then, like... I don't know how that translates to to oh. really having an effective experience. So, like the the CLEP program is one that like I don't get giving guys college credit just for being in the military. It's like no, you should be in a college room environment. Like you should be challenged by your teachers.
0: I uh, I don't know. I think I wasn't talking about that program. I think that should. I think that's oh. actually a great idea. Of, of doing that in terms of getting giving guys credit for stuff that they've done in the military i think that's a i think that's a great idea and a good initiative i was talking more about like the online universe like college degrees that guys get from like what american military universe amu or like university of maryland online umuc or all these other random like pick pick whatever it is like the guys that always
1: like or polytech i think that one's down in florida yeah i uh Cause like- my fear with, with that is, and I've told like the soldiers and rangers that I've had in my platoon where I've adv- advocated for, if, if like you think you want to get out, like get out, like I want you to go and use the GI Bill that you've had, not so much for, like you can only learn best in the classroom, but take a break, like take the two years for your associates off and figure out what you want to do, what you want to study. Take four years off, um, it's it's easier said than done if you've got a family at that point and you've got bills to pay. But doing it on the same time online, it's like, at that point, it just seems like a check the box. Mm-hmm. It's like all the majors that want to be competitive for battalion command get these like bullshit MBA degrees. Um, everyone that was at, I say everyone, like a couple people at MCCC wanted to go to Columbus State to get an MBA. And like, why? Oh, I just need to have, if I have a graduate degree, then that makes me more competitive for Resident ILE, it makes me more competitive for battalion command and these key staff positions where it's like, I don't think that the degree's worth the paper that it's printed on. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I would strongly advocate for taking a gap two or three years and going and getting your degree and coming back with actual knowledge that will, like, you know, better the Army than learning, like, some bullshit business practice from a dude at, like, a fourth-rate, you know, university.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i i I do think that i think it's like kind of similar into civilian education but like the military has set up these programs for guys to get education in the military but i think there's like these more scrupulous businesses take advantage of these programs and then get um junior or lower enlisted guys or like ncos who don't perhaps know any better about how the education system works that think that they're getting the same thing by like giving up their TA or doing additional years um, to get these degrees, thinking that it's an uh, equivalency to like an actual college degree. And I think that's a huge um, disadvantage. And I kind of like a, something that guys I think should be aware of when they try to do these programs is that you had to be, you have to take into account like what the degree is actually worth.
1: And, and truly like what is the value to the military for getting these degrees for these guys? If it's just a check the block, They're not being like really challenged with Mm -hmm. the degree or using it you know you look at the officers it's like why did you need an mba to be a good battalion commander like you didn't need it 30 years ago like people would go and get it but it's not like it was necessary you used to need a graduate degree if you wanted to you know teach at west point because so many of the professors were you know active duty military but like i've run into a lot of e8s that i'm like hey you know when's the next sergeant major board are you up And it's like, no, I don't have a degree. It's like, what do you mean you don't have why does that matter? Mm -hmm. You know, you should be leading soldiers. You should be that like that NCO that everyone looks up to because you've got six fucking deployments. You know, you have your EIB, C I B, you're a senior jump master, but all of a sudden now this this other sergeant major who took like a couple deployments off to get one of these online degrees who doesn't have any of the combat experience who maybe isn't Ranger qualified like these are the guys that are getting promoted because now they just look at that block and says yep got this you know online degree doesn't translate at all in my opinion I don't think a degree translates at all to leadership potential like whatsoever and and it's just like that that's a frustrating thing in the military too now if we're just pushing these degrees on people just to have them spend money to make them think for retention purposes that it's necessary and then they don't get the leadership if they don't take advantage of it like that that's disingenuous mm-hmm.
0: yeah, that's for sure. I think it's kind of uh, I can see like what the like what leaders intended on doing with something like that like the intent is to like you know have more educated leaders with that. But the second order or, like, the unintended consequence of that is that guys are then sacrificing, you know, their time and, and money on these programs that, at, the at the end of the day, don't really produce any, you know, benefits or any effects for the force or for their for, the, for leadership, whatever.
1: I mean, this goes back to broadening, too. Like, a, a, now, degrees aside, you look at all of the, like, senior officers at places like the 82nd Airborne like all the battalion commanders, brigade commanders, division commanders, like all these individuals have just gone back and forth to the Ranger Regiment. And like very few have any broadening experiences like whatsoever. And I'm speaking in in very general terms here, but most of them, it's only been like a a little bit of staff time, but company command, company command, like battalion s three time at regiment, uh, battalion command in the regular army, battalion command in the Ranger Regiment. you know some sort of a brigade or division level experience and then coming back as a regimental commander or going straight into brigade command and then people are at the same time advocating yeah you should you should go volunteer to be like an ROTC instructor you should take some time off and do this it's like none of the senior leaders that are like actual leaders take any time off whatsoever so it's like what is the actual need to do these programs whether it's broadening or you know your master's level education if the guys that are advocating for it don't have it, or didn't even take advantage of it because they knew that in order to be a leader, you have to stay in and actually lead. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, we're getting, you get conflicting messages. Like, why, why is that important for me to go and volunteer for this program in the Army rather than just staying and just going and getting a second or third company command? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that makes as little sense to me as the, some of the educational argument.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's like the, um, I guess depending on how you set up the system too, you know, like I I definitely see the utility in doing all these broadening assignments and doing all these like non-leadership roles, but then at the end of the day, you know, the Army still rewards those who didn't do that with the leadership positions that, you know, the highly coveted leadership positions. So it's kind of a shame.
1: Yeah, I... You no, know, we, we've talked a lot about from, you know, where America was and all of a sudden, you know, we're here with, you know, some improvements to the military. But I think at the end of the day, it's just like, what is the actual fix to the problem that we're identifying mm-hmm. um, versus what's just identifying the problem and leaving it there? I, I would say for this conversation, uh, graduate level degrees should not be a necessity for um, the privilege of commanding or leading um, and nor do I think that uh, these broadening assignments are necessary for individuals to be effective battalion and brigade and division commanders like that. It just does not make sense. Like muddy boots are muddy boots and all this staff time stuff like there's individuals that can go handle that. I don't mm-hmm. you know, I don't need uh, I, I don't need like my ultimate warrior to be my ROTC instructor. You know, what I need to be my ultimate warrior is the brigade commander who's going to authorize me to, you know, go forth and execute a very violent plan of action without any hesitation.
0: Yeah. That's... I don't
1: need I don't need to know that they worked in Congress for two years doing some bullshit like appropriation stuff for some senator.
0: Mm-hmm. It's like not all broadening assignments are created equal and not all degrees are created equal either for that matter. 100%. No, but, uh... 100%. I think that I think this kind of echoes what we were talking about with Brian and Pete about leadership ta- about talent and managing talent, in, ge- in general in the military. And then uh, I guess how the military doesn't do a very good job of managing talent in general. And I think I'm actually kind of glad that we talked. We kind of touched on it uh, last week, talking to them, but like the new system of like uh, positions, the AIM system or whatever it is. Like I think that's a pretty good, pretty good initiative that. Um, it be, should be interesting in the future to see what happens to the military with that uh, initiative.
1: You know, and it's funny that we talk about like what it takes to be a leader. I'm trying to think of like we have a pretty like bureaucratic model within the army as far as like that next position, and it's really interesting because they always tell you like when I was fighting for company command and waiting, and same with like you know getting your platoon leader position. It's like, oh, whenever you show up, essentially, you're just waiting in a queue. Well, you know when that stops? Like, battalion command. How many friends, I, I know we're, I'm not saying, like, to be tabless is bad, but how many tabless infantry officers do you see as battalion commanders of infantry battalions? None. I don't know. I can't, I can't think of any. Yeah. I can't think of a single tabless infantry battalion commander uh, for a light striker airborne battalion ever. But it's like we don't care about that though when it comes to company command, mm. you know. So why why all of a sudden do we have this distinction that we have to draw? It's not because all of a sudden all these tabbed Ranger qualified infantry officers did a broadening assignment that they got their battalion command positions. It was like no, it was a very simple test probably for that division commander and slotting and that corps commander. Oh. Dude had this many deployments, Ranger qualified, EIB, CIB, okay. Like, he's met the minimum standards. It's like, so it wasn't like, oh, this guy wrote a really excellent paper when he was at the war college about uh, deforestation and warfare. We should give him a battalion command. It's like, no, this guy has muddy boots. Put him in command. Like I, it, And then it just goes back to, like, why do we give people and not have the right uh, talent management system? And the last thing I would say on that, I remember when I was a brand new second lieutenant at Ibelik, the brigade commander for I Bullock, uh Airborne School, and maybe it wasn't RTB at that point. It, it, so, but he, you know, he wore a red beret. His colonel comes in, and, and an article had just come out saying like all the best leaders are getting out of the army, and we all had to read it. And it had like very interesting points. I would I would go search it if I were you listening, and just you know take it in and. Have, you know, formulate an opinion on it but he was like really pissed off that this was even written and he says like I don't think this guy writing has any idea what the best officers in the military look like because after all I'm standing right here I would consider myself one of the best I'm still here I'm in command like what does that say about me it's like it says that you clearly un- did not understand the text that was in front of you uh, or have any sort of humility when it came to saying that you know you were not hot shit mm-hmm. um so I, I think what Brian and Pete were saying was like spot on as far as like a, a shitty talent management system. And now having gotten out and seeing like where some of my peers are at, it's like I'm, I'm glad, like I'm, I don't want to switch.
0: Yeah, because I think that that whole thing about um, command, like it's because like they, if you stay in long enough, everyone gets the command, isn't that like the the kind of the mentality behind it? Let's, yeah, it's I like don't know I understand that. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, I don't know what, in what other job or occupation that you'd have, that you'd have the, the, um, the right to have a certain job would stay staying long enough. You know, if, I don't, that's not effective talent, like talent management, like maybe from like a, as like a second Lieutenant, like everyone should have the same opportunities as like a Lieutenant, you should have the same opportunities to get the same training, but like past that, like you should know, you know, um, you know, if you're going to stay in or not, or stay for command, it's like I feel like you had to be a little bit more stringent on who you pick to be commanders because not everyone deserves the command.
1: No, 100%. Now, I remember when I got here, we found out that, you know, the brigade was going to Afghanistan. And it, you know, it's not the Afghanistan of 2001. It's definitely not the Afghanistan of 2010 or 2015. Like, it, you know, Afghanistan and the war there has, has shifted greatly as to what um, deployments look like. But even with that being said and knowing what the missions were going to be, it's like, okay, you have this giant pool as a brigade commander of all the potential commanders uh, to take forward to Afghanistan and give leadership roles. You're not fucking around anymore at this point. Like, so if you are in company command or you're waiting for company command, you don't have a single deployment. You have a deployment with no CIB. Uh, you're not ranger qualified. Like, you're not the most fit looking individual. Like, those guys, like, transfer them out, get them out, like put the guys in that are waiting in the pipeline that have CIBs, that have like maybe more than one Afghan rotation or have an Iraq rotation, have guys that went and did stuff um, like serve in the 75th, have guys that you know, served in those platoons, those second platoons that you get, like the scout platoon, or, you know, taking over a mortar platoon or were XOs. Like that should be stuff that you're immediately filling those positions with and saying, Hey, sorry you didn't get a full eighteen months in command, but we're going to Afghanistan. I can't risk my soldiers because you either A didn't have the experiences or maybe were unfortunate enough not to get the experiences. You didn't get yourself qualified out of I Bullock or after M Triple C, which is like a requirement for everyone to go. Um, And then three, maybe you went to like a selection, like an SFAS and weren't selected and don't have a tab. Like that, that's almost like a, like a fucking red flag. Like don't put this guy in anything. Like, you know, failed Ranger school, has no deployment, has no EIB, failed SFAS. Like give him a command in Afghanistan. Like, are you serious? Is that like the kind of like success story you want the soldiers and young lieutenants to look up to? Like I'm super biased by this because I'm, I'm still very salty about the management of like my peers when I was in the brigade because there were so many individuals that like I knew that came in from range Regiment that I consider better officers than like my own experience. And I was like, these guys should go ahead of me in the queue. And not to mention the day they show up, they should be given a guide on. Like that's the kind of dude that I would follow. If you said, hey, you're a saw gunner in this guy's company now, I'd be like, I'm good. Like, fuck, yeah, I'll, I'll do whatever he says. But then you're like, no, he's going to go up in the Brigade 3 shop for uh, 16 months. Then You know, he, he's earned his command after. like, they, What kind of fucking system is that?
0: Yeah, it's like I always wonder, like, why don't they just put the more qualified people in? It's Because
1: like, they do that for battalion command, yeah. but, like, we just don't care for companies. Like, the actual, the, like, last real leadership position you could have in combat where you're, like, running around with your platoons... Like, that should be the one that you're probably the most protective of. Like, any lieutenant can go in and get experience as a platoon leader. Mm -hmm. But the guy that's got to orchestrate potentially three to four platoons, all the air assets, the other battalion missions that are going on, you know, adjacent, the terrain of Afghanistan, like, that should be the dude that's the most competent and has proved himself up to that point. Now, you can probably guess that I'm, I'm not the most, like humble when it comes to identifying some of my peers and so maybe that you know rubbed some battalion commanders the wrong way sorry not sorry like all i wanted to do was to make sure that soldiers were taken care of and like when we don't have that like it take me out of this the equation if i see one of my buddies come into you know a brigade that dude should be the number one company commander like in that pipeline for the next dude that that fucks up
0: hmm yeah, but, I, th- but my, I think my worry is that if you do not—by not giving everybody a chance, you miss out on possible talent that has not, you know, been eliminated quite yet. Because I know, like, at least for me, like, my lieutenant time would have been drastically different from my captain time, like, how I perform, you know? And it's just like, maybe some people just, uh, before they, you know, became a commander, never had the opportunities to, to go to the selection or go to ranger school. Maybe by giving them that selection or the the command is giving them the opportunity to excel.
1: Yeah, I'm I, again like having a ranger tab is not an indication that you will be a great leader, but as like an infantry officer, when you have all of these, like building blocks that you have to use in order to be like a successful second lieutenant at iBook. It's like, that's just like taking a test. Mm -hmm. Like for me, I looked at ranger school and there's, I mean, there's like a lot of stories for guys that why they failed whether it was injury, whether, you know, they, they, you know, failed on peers. But at the end of the day, it's like, all right, I've spent the last six months learning how to throw a baseball, hit a baseball and use a catcher's glove to catch a baseball. And now all I've got to do is go and show that I can swing a bat, catch the pop up. And then throw it back to home plate if i can't do any of those three things did i really even have any good grasp of what i was taught like that's it's like just mastering the basics if a private can go there i had a i had a ranger that showed up after rasp was sent to us mid-row got back within a month went to ranger school and went straight through so if you're telling me that this 19 year old can do it you coming after four years of college getting like a four to six month train up where they're teaching you exactly what you're going to be tested on at ranger school. And you've already demonstrated you've got this like mental proficiency, having graduated college. If you can't put all those things together, like, like how much more of an opportunity you need? It's not like when you go to the NFL for a professional organization. If, uh, who's the quarterback for the Browns? I'm already for forget- Baker Mayfield. that, that dude's had like two pretty shitty seasons. I don't think you're going to give him very many more if he's running your franchise. Mm-hmm. Like bring the next quarterback in, you know, like get the next pipe swinger up there. This dude is, this dude's out. Like, why do we have to give you six years of opportunity in the army to mm. prove yourself mm. if you couldn't do it in the first three?
0: Very true. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. I was like, I remember when I went through Ranger school, we had a kid come out of AIT, like a kid fresh out of AIT or OSIT, uh, get his ranger tab first time go and everything that's pretty badass because i was like 18 years old finishing osit went to Ranger School after osit
1: (laughs) that's bad it was like and people always ask you like what what do you have to do to prepare for ranger school it's like the classes are taught to you Mm -hmm. at the level of what most of the individuals going through represents so that's like your pfcs that's like second lieutenants and then, like, guys from a unit that may be, like, you know, specialists or brand new E5s. So it's not like it's getting taught to, like, this master's-level program. It's like they are they teach it to the lowest level there. So it's it's not like rocket science. There's a book that you can buy before you even go and read every single fucking instructions that they're going to give you and then just put it to use before you even get there. It's like the test is open book. You Literally. Literally open book. Like, you, you take out your handbook and they're like, hey – did you follow steps one through six when you set up the patrol base? No. Okay, well, you know, page 534, go check it out. It's all about patrolling. Like, you could have read this in your downtime. Yeah. And that's for me, that, that's what's frustrating. It's like, we talk about grit and getting after it and, like, taking some ownership of, of yourself and your, your position. Like, that goes a long way long way and I think the most successful people are the ones that like do some of that like self teaching and know what they're going to go and get themselves into and come prepared like you can't just show up and be like what oh I have to the barrel goes that way <laughs> turn the gun around like you're already struggling
0: man yeah I was not like I I didn't know shit in Ranger school uh, I probably looking back on it didn't I probably still don't know shit after writing school either but definitely was a more a great test of you know some fortitude mental fortitude and physical fortitude that i've never had before and that's one thing i look I mean, at after in school
1: like you're an fa guy and you went and got your tab and then you went to the ranger Regiment. My, my dad like didn't join rtc had no idea what the army did like did rtc for a year and a half while he played basketball up at school graduated uh, faoc at the time or whatever faoic whatever they called it back in the, the late eight, early 80s and then went straight through ranger school right after that. They were like, who wants to go to ranger school? And he was like, yeah, I don't know what it is. Sure, send me. Mm-hmm. And then goes straight through. It's like, listen, if a dude coming out of, like, South Jersey that played basketball his whole life, that went into the Army kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, I'm F.A. Oh, oh what's the school that I go? Yeah, sure, send me to that school. If he can do it, mm-hmm. like, come on, guys. Like, especially coming out of Ibullock. Like, there's mm-hmm. only so many, like, sad, weeping stories. Like, the rest of it just comes down to perseverance. Mm-hmm. And, like, actually showing that you can, like, retain information that's given to you.
0: Yeah, like personal responsibility.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely... The- but s- segueing off of that, like, leaning forward outside of COVID, let's talk fitness goals. Because, like, you want to do, what is it, an ultra...
0: Yeah, so I would like to do an ultra marathon in the fall. Uh, the Pacific Northwest has a lot of really nice uh, ultra, like trail running ultras just because, you know, it's the Northwest. So they have a ton of state parks and national parks that you have a lot of trails there. So I would like to do an ultra marathon, like a 50-miler in the fall. That's my goal. It's fucking nasty. Yeah. It's just... Uh, Disgusting. I don't know if I've talked about it with on here with you, but that, I know we've talked about it before in the past about how... For me, like, doing a long endurance, like, an hour run is probably, like one of my favorite things to do because it's, like, you get to in a very meditative state where, like, I don't really listen or, like hear anything. Like, I, I usually will, will throw on, like, a podcast, uh, like, every other run if I'm going for a long run uh, just to have something playing. But I cannot... I actually can't tell you what I hear in the podcast or what I've heard in the podcast. It's just that like, it's just noise for me. And that's just how, yeah. uh, when I, when I do well just when I work out in general, it's just usually just noise for me, uh, in the background. Um, but I just find it to be like any hour plus workouts to be like um, meditative or like, I, it's like the ultimate in mindfulness where I feel like, I, I, while i'm like running i like kind of scan my body to see how my body feels like big paying attention to how my body feels it's, i don't know i just really like the, whole, the being in that endurance state of like that low intensity and just kind of just flowing with it i guess so we're
1: gonna look forward to hearing about an ultra come like october November? yeah i would
0: say like a september october time frame um, so have
1: you started training up for this Kind of yeah, started I start, running.
0: Yeah, I started running last week. Started ramping up my mileage. Um I, I'm i You can't you can't do this
1: cold ahead. like you did the you can't no. do this cold like you did the marathon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was probably one of the most painful things I've ever done was running a marathon cold. Or running a marathon I, without training for it.
1: So for those of you that, that don't know, a couple for a couple years, like it'd be like, Bobby, how much have you run this year? And you're like, I do some intervals but Essentially, the Army 10Miler is it, and so long as I can hold a Ranger standard for the Army 10Miler, I know I'm in good shape. And then it was like, oh, I'm just gonna do a marathon. You're like, wait, you've only run 10 miles this year, and you're like, yeah, yeah. And you're like, oh, I just finished the Philly Marathon. It's like, okay, now we definitely have to train up. You cannot, you can't go and do a 50Miler in the Pacific Northwest yeah. and not doing anything.
0: Yeah, the running joke from med school is that my yearly mileage was 20 miles because I did, I would do the Broad Street Run, which is a 10Mile run in Philadelphia every May, and then do the Army 10Miler uh in the in like i think i think in september or october i think is when i usually do it so i usually only run, run 20 miles a year um and then since last week i've actually run 40 miles in two weeks now That's which great, i've yeah? like doubled my yearly mileage already in hell, two weeks hell yeah
1: hell yeah
0: but yeah like last november i, I ran the philadelphia marathon without training for it i went from couch to marathon and five hours i would say or whatever it is cash a marathon uh but it was very painful i finished it which was my goal <coughs> was just to finish the marathon um it was very painful uh the last like uh i think like 10 miles or so was fucking was that was a gut check major gut check
1: yeah well, now your goal is just to break two hours on the marathon right we'll get you in some some nice Nike Zoom flies or whatever they're called.
0: Yeah. i so say if I could qualify for Mar- for Boston, that'd be kind of sweet, but I don't know if I'll do that. But yeah, uh, that's the goal, ultra marathon in the fall. And then Hell you yeah, are going to do something also on the endurance side as well.
1: Yeah. I'm looking to do an Ironman in the next year. Uh, I've got my shoes. I've got like my heart rate device set up. Uh, unfortunately, all the bike stores are closed. Otherwise I'd go get fitted for a decent like road bike. And then uh, the apartment I'm moving into has a pool, so it was like, I need to do something because I don't feel like I, – I, I'm, like, lost as far as, like, physically what I'm training for. It was in the Army. It was very easy to be like, oh, I'm training up to, mm-hmm. to get back to regiment. Oh, I'm training for – my goal in the long run is to do the long walk, mm-hmm. so, like, that's another, like, backstop. But now it's like, I, do I want to do a bodybuilding, you know, program? Do I want to do, like, a functional fit? And I feel like – and then I was like, oh, Iron Man hell yeah, like, I can do that, like, fuck. Yeah,
0: that's kind of like my mentality, too, is, like, I've done CrossFit for more than a decade now at this point, so it's just, like, I think I've gotten to the point where I know I'm, I'm probably going to be as good as I want to be at CrossFit without going full-time CrossFit, I put it that way, um, you know what I mean? So, like, there's not much else for me to train for, like, I'm not training for the ACFT, you can kiss my ass, I'm not training for that. Uh, so there's not there's like like you were no. saying there's like very few very few things to train left or train for left at this point, and then now it's just like the endurance or like you get in the kind of the niche the nichey uh sports of like you know strongman powerlifting Olympic weightlifting you go that route or you go like the yep. endurance route um it just depends on what you're gonna do but I always think it's good to train for something
1: I think that's exactly it I because like I was. Yeah you know, the hard part is is like staying motivated and then having like a consistent diet. It's like unreal how having an an inconsistent diet with like a fitness goal just makes both completely trash. Like you can't like I've not been able to put on size in the program. I'm like on a size program. I've put on no size whatsoever. My lifts are whatever. Like I am not happy with where my cardio is right now so it's like I just need to like literally do a 180, put some stuff on the back burners like you know you always want to have those goals to be able to like I just want to make sure I can always squat front squat back squat 315, deadlift five like you know put up a one rep bench at 315. like if I can just maintain that general level of fitness but also do mm-hmm. like a marathon, a long swim a long bike and I was like I feel like holistically like fit. Mental, too.
0: Yeah, that's exactly like the great point to have because it's just, like you can either spend like your time, uh, because you get like diminishing returns and in like something that you're already good at, so you get rapidly diminishing returns. Definitely, in terms of like strength, like it takes like years to add like 10 pounds to like, your back squat now at this point versus yeah. like to transition to something new and work on something new and then be having much. You know, much more bang for your buck, uh, getting good at something new.
1: I mean, like I think when I was when I was doing like a good amount of strength, like my deadlift was my best lift, and I think I got up to like over the course of a year, I went from like a 500 pound deadlift to like a 535, Mm -hmm. and then in like the year and a half, two years after hitting that 535, I never got higher. Like, and I, I tried with you the one time when we were at the gym where I was like, I'll, I'll try to pull like 550 because 520 felt pretty good. And I didn't even like, I barely moved the bar. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, like, do I really need to like try to work up to pulling 600 pounds? Like, what is that doing for me in the long run other than like just increasing the chance my spine's going to shoot up my ass?
0: <laughs> yeah, just like once you get to a certain point, like for me, it's like, uh, like my back squat. Like, I have not gone heavy in a back squat in in years but I can still probably walk up to a bar and like throw on like 365 and that probably be, like a heavy single ish like it probably like max out like yeah. 405 like 400 usually like the whole my back squat is like a 100 max so it's just like I can either spend all my time on improving like a single lift like a back squat or like a snatch or something like that or I could just take that time and just get really good at running or like do something that I've never done before or like run an ironman like instead of spending all this time on, like, adding 50 pounds to my back squat, which doesn't really do Yeah, much. I was really hoping,
1: though, when you said you were going to do the ultra, I was like, when I, because, like, I I always, after you and Brian, I always, like, end up finding more motivation when I find out you guys are doing something. It's like, oh, Brian went to SFS. I'm like, shit, I need to do something cool. Oh, Bobby's in med school. Shit, I need to do something cool. And then when you're like, I'm going to do an ultra, I was like, Fuck. All right, I'm gonna do an Iron Man. Hey, Bobby, do you want to do an Ironman Man instead? And you're like, "Fuck no!" It's like, "God damn it! Like, this would be so much better if I had a training partner."
0: I would actually probably enjoy. I think Iron Man is actually probably on my like list of things to do. Just that I'm so not. So do it
1: now, and then, and then I'll sign up for an ultra with you. Do it now, and then I'll sign up for an ultra with I'm you. I'm just
0: not a very good. I'm not a good swimmer. Well, I'm, I actually I'm a pretty good swimmer, like distance wise. Uh, so actually, I might that's actually all you have to do: two point
1: one miles. Yeah, that's all you got to do.
0: Cause I've like I've swam like a mile like a mile in the pool before. That's what like just randomly like I will I swim laps every so often just for fun. And uh, I've swum a mile before. I'll let it.
1: I'll let it marinate. Yeah, you know, just let it marinate. You you think about it.
0: Maybe we'll do an Iron Man together at some point. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. 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 Maybe After we can get
1: like a tandem bike. Yeah. I don't know if that's legal, but like. I don't give a shit.
0: Yeah, very really cool. Sorry
1: guys, I'm a I'm a veteran. Like I have to ride with him. It's it's a thing. Sorry.
0: Yeah, but 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 what you were saying about like uh, the company that you keep being very important. I think that's a great point that you bring up because it's like, you know, it's very hard to just keep yourself motivated if you don't have you know people around you, not really to like inspire you, but people around you that are doing like really high speed things like it's always it's a lot easier yep. to keep yourself on track if you're surrounded by very high performing individuals. So that's a, that's a one thing that I always tell people is to like you know watch the company that you keep and watch people that you hang out with because um who you hang out with says a lot about who you are as a person. And that, you know, you if you look at like the people you spend the most time with, like the group of three or five people you spend the most time with, you are probably very similar to those three or five people. So you just have Good to be
1: looking fit, mm-hmm. tattooed, mm-hmm. Pretty much. All my I mean, friends are models.
0: But you got, but but seriously, it, it, that's one thing that I want you guys to take away from is that, you know, to look around you and that if you're, if, I guess, if you're like the top of your group, then you probably need to find a different group of people to hang out with. Um, and it, it's kind of shitty to say, you know, cut to cut people out of your life. Um, but sometimes it's good to cut people out of your life that are not helping you out in any or benefiting you in any They're challenging you yeah they aren't challenging you like i love uh the guys that we hang out with like our group chats are great because there's no always i can always if i'm like not you know not into something i can always pull my phone and just be like should i do this and then everyone's like yeah <laughs> why not
1: yeah, why are you complaining yeah why like, are you
0: asking us so i think it's always good yeah. to have people that you know are and it's always good to have people that are you know down to these crazy things too like that's one thing I do miss the most about uh, being separated from everybody things so like separate from you and all the other guys in the military is that I can't do like uh, like text my buddy uh, to go do like a killer session uh, at the gym you know like Saturday suck fests used to be used to be my favorite day of the week because because that, that means that that used to mean you know I get together with the boys or girls whoever whomever get together with a group of people that love to suffer and suffer together with some friends. Uh, but being in, you know, in New Jersey, I'm not, I don't have access to the same, uh, level of mental, uh, toughness that I get in the military. Yeah.
1: Like I used to love going to audio on Saturday mornings. Uh, my buddy Nick, who was a PL with me at one seven five in the same company, like we'd get after like a really good strength portion, we get some accessory work and then we would just absolutely kill ourselves Mm -hmm. Um, on the runners that they got there on the assault bikes uh, outside. We had like mapped out where a quarter mile was um, speaking of which if you have my Nalgene, gene I Will kill you because I lost it years ago. It was a green uh, or No, it was it was a it was a clear Nalgene. gene it had the DUI on it. It had very like specific Savannah type stickers um, it had stickers that only I would have had uh, I put that out there as a turnaround point, and after the second set, I came back and that Nalgene was gone. Mm. So, if you were at Fort Benning, probably Task Force 128, because those are the only people at Benning that wouldn't respect that DUI, um, being from the 3rd Infantry Division. Like, I'm assuming it was you guys. That's all I'm going to say. I'll find you. I will get my Nalgene back. I promise, as God is my witness, that Nalgene will be back in my possession. And if you know who took my now, Gene, back in 2016, send me their names. I want to know.
0: Yeah. That, w- that was, like, what you just said about Saturdays going to Audie Murphy. That was, like, one of my favorite things to do was, like, text the crew, you know, go up to, Saturday, like, Saturday mornings. What's everybody doing? Let's go out to the gym and, and thrash.
1: Yeah. Hoping Sometimes to do something. It's always best, too, because you would see the Rangers from, that didn't want to go – Uh, to the crtf you know it's like oh who's who's got black chucks on in here all right i know they're down to throw down some weight. like if you're not in the squat rack putting up big numbers and you know you don't have black chucks on like see ya yeah this is the second home
0: i do i do enjoy i do remember when i was at uh up at lewis over the summer uh for my rotation away rotation going to the gym and being like this guy's a ranger this guy is from 275 he just looks like a ranger and it's like it's funny yeah. cuz you can like look in, like walk into the gym and just look around and you can just kind of tell like who does what or who's had what experience just by how people work out and train i think that's another cool thing yeah. too
1: it's amazing too like i think the last thing that I'll I'll hit on for this easter sunday it's like <sighs> the reason why i loved regiment is because we talked about how functionally fit the rangers were but it's not like they were just strong and fast like they worked so much on technique when it was cleaning and doing jerks snatches i think if you went to the only guys that would snatch in there were either like guys that did uh olympic weightlifting in college and a lot of them were uh west pointers because it's one of the only schools that actually has a program for that uh or dudes from regiment because they knew that like technique was crucial but i would never see like anyone else doing any sort of olympic weightlifting in audi it was always the same cruise
0: or chandler smith
1: or chandler smith yeah uh friend of the podcast uh we're not worthy he is so strong (laughs) and so fit that was so jealous of his gym setup
0: yeah uh yeah shout out chandler smith but i remember uh what was it It was when he was there for i guess uh armor Bullock, a Bullock. I would run into run into him at Audie Murphy in the morning sometimes when he was in Bullock and I was in 375 and just, you know, watching him work out was great. And then uh, having – There's a dude they
1: called Baby Baby Hulk that I think, like, snatched 315 one time um, on the platforms right there in front of the thing, and he was uh, at A Bullock and just like, Jesus, like, I wish I'd gotten into this way sooner.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's very humbling, too, going to the gym, uh, especially Audie Murphy because, like, that's one thing that I always enjoyed about being in uh, – at audie murphy was that you're never going to be the strongest one in the room or like the mm-hmm. fastest one like audie murphy there's no some studs they go to audie murphy
1: yeah if i go there i understand it like i'm not the strongest i'm not the fastest i'm the best looking i'll take one out of three you know on a standard saturday um but i mean like i remember we did a we did a great workout at audie one time it was uh i think it was snatches and rows i think it was uh what was it? it? was like 15, 12, 9, 6, 3 of snatch and then like a 20 cal row. Do you remember that? No. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I, don't think I, I don't think I won either.
0: It was like the only workout that I remember us doing was that Was a, the front squat and burpee workout we did in, in Carson that one year.
1: It wasn't a front squat. It was a clean. It was a 135 clean, 10 rounds of 10 and 10 burpees over the bar. Right? Or was it ten to one? I
0: thought it was like ten to one of something. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I got my ass kicked on that. That was yeah. awful. I was so I was so confident. For those of you who don't know, I had been at Carson for over a year. I felt very acclimated. My lungs were were just massive at this mm-hmm. point. Like I could have I could have run to Pike's Peak and back and Bobby's coming out from sea level and I just remember like, you know what? It's been three years of getting my ass kicked by this guy. Like this day. Welcome to day number one of the rest of your life. I'm going to crush you. And then I lost to him by like three minutes. I Like he finished and I had like a couple, like maybe I was on like the set of three or four and I was just like, I'm not even going to bother pushing myself at this point. Like I have lost. This is so embarrassing. I, this was my only thing that I was looking forward to with his visit was finally beating him. That, that was
0: like the peak of my CrossFit fitness. I'll put it that way though. That year was like the peak of my CrossFit fitness. It's been declining yeah. ever since.
1: <laughs> well, we would do workouts too, where like we would each pick a movement, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna pick stuff that I know I'm gonna beat him at: rowing, assault bike, and then he'd be like, oh, and then we're gonna do burpees. Be like, and I lost. Like, <laughs> I cannot cycle this shit whatsoever. I do yeah. ten burpees, I will die.
0: Because you're like six foot five.
1: Thank you, thank it, you for getting that right.
0: It's very. I will say that being shorter is very beneficial in CrossFit. And that, uh, that's why Matt Frazier is number one in the world because he is five foot six, right? If that. Yeah. He is a, s- sorry, Matt Frazier, any Matt Frazier fanboys listening to this. I still love you, but that is a small human being.
1: Yeah. Congratulations for being so fit though. Yeah. And you can grow facial hair too. We know that. Mm-hmm. And you've got some nice tattoos. We know this as well. Like and don't get butt hurt just because we identify that you're short,
0: yeah. right? But I'm sure...
1: There's a lot of great short people. Uh, Josh Bridges, another no, awesome. fantastic short athlete. Also a Navy SEAL. Does not <laughs> have a book out yet. Like, great human beings.
0: Oh, that was another segue that I was going to ask you about. How many Ranger books do you know? Have you ever read any Ranger books?
1: Yeah, uh, Spearheaders. I'm going to read that one. Uh, yeah, it's about the beginning of the... The first Ranger battalion up in Carrickfergus, and they're like train up, oh, and, like, World like War II. Operation Torch. Yeah. Um, outside of that, and Black Hawk Down, which I've never read because there's a movie.
0: But there's not like Ranger. They're not like Ranger written Ranger about Ranger books.
1: Uh, the other one, the the sniper wrote a book. Um, what was it called? The Reaper.
0: Oh yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Two from Third Bat. Oh yeah, uh, Irving.
1: Yeah, I don't know literally any other Ranger books. I mean, they—it's like before every single mission, it's like you know you're not going to be able to talk about it.
0: Yeah, like, yeah. I was kind of—I've always it's wondered like a that
1: to be talked about, and they want to make.
0: Yeah, I've always kind of wondered like uh, why SEALs love to write books, whereas you know the other military branches don't write books like SF. I guess SF has a couple couple books, but they're not, like, uh, huge. Like, CAG doesn't have, like, any, like, title books. Like, you know.
1: I just think it's because of the environment. So, like, the SEAL community in general is such a, such a small group, but they're surrounded by so many people that, like, within their naval branch don't do anything remotely close to what they're doing. So it's, mm-hmm. like, almost, oh, I can talk about this. It's cool. Um... You know, Green Berets work a lot with the uh, conventional army, so it's, again, one of those, oh, I can tell my story. I think the Rangers, because you're just such like a close-knit thing and all you really experience is other Rangers, that all the missions that you go on or you have the opportunity to take part in, you're like, oh, yeah, that's just another That's another day. I don't need mm-hmm. to write a book to talk about it because literally every single dude in this organization has the exact same experiences. like, why am I special?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I was wonder. I almost wonder if it's like doing the regiment a disservice for not having like books or like more, I guess publicity for it. But I guess it's probably a good thing too. That's what this uniculture, culture, the way it is.
1: Yeah, I think it's. I think it's great. It's like the, the silent professional. It's like you just, you can like talk about your experiences. I think like we do. Like you know, we we talk about how great the rangers are and how much we love the regiment and the things that we learn mm-hmm. from it. But I just don't see how talking mission specific things Mm -hmm. um in public or you know like putting it down on paper like that's your experience it doesn't need to be shared with anyone it's not going to like other than like trying to get cool points it does no benefit to Mm -hmm. to like tell war stories like that i just don't think it's there's a purpose
0: yeah i think that's very true how you're saying like you know for a lot of seal books i think it's mostly like driven by personal greed perhaps for just getting a book and then or that fame maybe driven by like fame and greed versus like driven by you know spreading the word about an organization or like you know
1: killing Osama like that the, the guy that said he shot Osama bin Laden yeah we already know how the mission went man like there was a crash helicopter it was in Pakistan mm-hmm. you got him you took him back to an aircraft carrier what Why did you need to write a 250-page book about it? Um, You know, like, Lone Survivor. It's like a really... It's like a fucked-up story. Like, it sucks. Like, the whole... Like, it just seemed like a total tragedy from the loss of life, especially when it comes to, like, all the special operators that were involved in that. Mm -hmm. But, like, why did you need to write a book about it? I don't understand. Because it just... It it raises a lot of questions about the... uh, the type of mission that was undertaken, the risks that were taken in that mission and like the huge loss of life. And then it's just like, was that, was what that mission was for that worth it? And then like, at the end of the day, why did you need to write a book about it? Like he could have gone and told these families individually, like, Hey, like I think one of the guys, his name was like Axe, like Axe, uh, was a, a stud on this mission, like saved my life, uh, Murphy, uh, another stud, like, why do we need to write books? I just don't understand it. Like, those are your experiences. They tell you over and over again in the regiment, at least like, do not talk about this. Like you're professional, whatever happens, like if it needs to get out, big army will write a story about it
0: Mm -hmm. and it
1: it will be watered down, but I don't need your personal take on stuff. I just like, just shut up.
0: but but don't you think that's like part of like almost like history? Like you want people to, to understand you know what happened, like the lives that were lost. Like, you know, it's different like reading a book about lone survivor versus like, you know, reading a history book or like you know reading the Wikipedia article for the same thing. You know, it's a little bit different.
1: I don't know. Um, I think if you if you write a book about a specific event, like it needs to be there should be, like, then there should be a, his, a historical context to it. So I know in, like, Lunsaravi he talks, you know, the first part of the book about going through buds and, mm-hmm. and getting there and, and, you know, shaping this operation. Um, but, like, you know, talk about the, the rest of the stuff, with, what the Rangers are doing at the same time to get in there. Um, talk about the aftermath. What, you know, what happened in the immediate, you know, subsequent months to change either the... Uh, mission command and control to make sure that we were set up for success on future operations like this, like that's the kind of stuff that seems like more educational rather than some of these people just writing books, um, you know. And again, not trying to besmirch anyone's name, especially the individuals that were, you know, taking part in these operations that didn't make it back. I just think it's a professional culture. Like silence is key when it comes to not oversharing. Um, because, again, you don't know who's reading the book. It's just, I don't know. It's not one of those things I think needs to be ever shared. Like, if someone wants it shared, the military will be like, hey, we're giving you the green light. We want to write about this, too, from a historical vantage point um, to educate, like, a conventional force maybe how to do a raid based off this raid on UBL. But I don't need your personal insight as to how you were walking up the stairs and whispered, whispered Osama to get this guy <laughs> to put, peek his head around the corner for your Disney movie.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I'm like a conflict on it because I feel I see where you're you're coming from in terms of like not oversharing. But at the same time, though, like it is like pop culture. And this is how military is able to connect with civilian counterparts that, you know, will never really understand the experience. Like this is like Lone Survivor, things like Lone Survivor, like the only way that, you know, uh, that Joe Smith on the corner understand some of the challenges that face, you know, the military, um, not only in like going to fight in combat, but coming back too, you know? So I feel like there's a part of that aspect too, of being able to, to show, um, kind of the, the, the price and the burden that we carry, uh, being in the military too. So I think I'm, I'm split on it too. You know, there's like, and a, this is
1: true. I mean, you look at like, black hawk down if like i'm saying that lone survivor and killing osama bin laden should have been should not have been written then like i, I should probably also say it like black hawk down shouldn't have been written um and you know I, I also think that people look at a lot of these films i think the military maybe doesn't care so much anymore because it's a marketing mm-hmm. tool for them and especially with recruitment like how many people saw uh lone survivor or what, what was the chris kyle one um with Bradley Cooper.
0: American Sniper, Uh,
1: Yeah, American Sniper, and they were like, I want to be a Navy SEAL, or, you know, like, they make all these films, like, and, uh, oh, I saw Charlie Mm -hmm. Sheen play a Navy SEAL, I want to be a Navy SEAL. So, like, I think there's, or the the Valor, Act of Valor, another Navy SEAL Mm -hmm. movie. Mm -hmm. A lot of Navy SEAL stuff here. Um, But, I don't know, I just, if you take, like, a vow when you get to these organizations not to talk about it, don't talk about it. Like just, I think that says a lot about you. If regardless of the story that you want to tell, if you're not told immediately after the mission, like, Hey guys, you can talk about this. Like, don't talk about it. There's just until it gets declassified. Like, I don't know. It's like, it's just like a promise. It's like Mm -hmm. I've made like, I'm making a promise to you. I'm doing an iron man. If I don't do the iron man, like that says a lot about my integrity and my character. If, the Ranger Regiment says, don't talk about this mission. If I talk about this mission, like, what do I have at this point then? If you strip from me my integrity, if you strip from me that that basic moral foundation there, it's going to be really hard for me to, like, actually think that you have any um, intent beyond, like, a a selfish Mm -hmm. rationale for Mm -hmm. releasing this information.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can see that where you're coming from too. I don't know. It's just like... Because as much as I roll my eyes when I see another Navy SEAL book, I still think that, you know, there are still many so many stories in the military, um, you know, coming from like Rangers or, you know, like Marsoc or AFSOC or all these other branches of special operations. So many good stories are out there that people don't know about, like,
1: um Well Band know. of Brothers, I mean that, that whole thing, you know, it was like the the entirety of essentially World War Two from from D Day on for the guys that have, uh, was it Best, not best uh what brigade was it? It was stone Was
0: it? 3-101? Uh, oh, no, it was 2 Was it 2-101? They,
1: they called it, like, whatever, after Colonel Sink, too. Like, they, they renamed, like, their, their regiment and the nickname. But, yeah, it's, like, that kind of stuff. Like, I, I think people will just... <sighs> I, again, I, I can see where you'd be conflicted because it's like very cool stories. It, it motivates people. I loved watching Band of Brothers mm-hmm. when they made an HBO series. Um, I don't know. Maybe wait until the war's over to write books. Maybe just like, maybe that's maybe that's the caveat we have. Like once the war's over, then tell your story, or once you're out of the military, then tell your story. Like, don't tell it while you're still in. Don't tell it while the conflict is still ongoing because it's just that the history's not done. Yeah. I don't know. Like Medal of Honor stories, like everyone knows the Medal of Honor stories cuz like those are things that people want shared. So like again, I again, I'm now I'm being a hypocrite cuz Michael Murphy received the Medal of Honor for the actions uh that Marcus Luttrell was able to document. So I look like a fucking idiot right now. Um I I don't know. I'm conflicted, okay? Like don't talk about it. I I talk about it. Yeah. Like
0: I think that what it comes down to I think hmm. what it comes down to is just being um There's too many Navy SEAL books out there where they guys just try to get their two minutes of fame, five minutes of fame and fortune for their, for their experiences. Um, But there are so many good, I feel like there's so many good stories out there that people don't know about, like Chapman, for example, like Chapman's story um, and his Medal of Honor was like a huge, like huge thing. Like, you know, how many stories have you heard about that, about guys like Chapman um, that, you know we're essentially left for dead by you know nsw i don't know it's just like so many cool stories out there that we are well
1: history channel has a great uh series right now where it talks about like some great ranger missions um that you know the the regiment took on in the last like decade that up until now were only shared like between guys in battalion like oh did you know a guy on this one yeah and then you like you hear stories about what happened but like, that's the kind of stuff that I think, like, the military can release what happens on these missions. And then if you want to write about it subsequently, it's, like, it's already out there. Mm-hmm. But, I don't know. It's a huge conflict for me. I just don't. Like, I personally know I would never write a book. Um, it's not like I've, I've been a part of things where, like, I think people would even give a shit what I have to write. That's why I'm on a podcast. Um, but, like, I, I took it seriously when they were, like, don't talk about it. Yeah. All right.
0: No that's, sure. that's like
1: the price You get to pay for coming here
0: Yeah It's the price you pay To be part of the club Yeah What is it First of all Fight club You don't talk about Fight club
1: Yeah don't talk about Fight club
0: Yeah um, But yeah Has- Hashtag Brad Pitt That was really random That was This is something That I have been Thinking about lately uh, This popped in my head
1: Well I'm gonna get back To studying now Because yeah. I don't wanna I don't wanna Waste this brain matter Up here Oh, these hats too. We'll get those uh, drafted and put on the the website for all of you that are looking to get like a cool, sweet post Easter gift.
0: Yeah. Um. I would say like closing comments, I guess. Uh. Since we're, I guess we're gonna keep wrapping this up. Uh. I don't really have too much to talk about. It's more of the same from my side. You know, functional fitness is still the same. Same programming. Uh. Leave a five star review. You know drop a comment down below let us know how we're doing um, appreciate all the dms that we've been getting and all the emails that we've been getting um, I, I guess with the quarantine uh, you guys have had a lot more time to respond to us and we have had more time to respond to you but just to throw it out there you know if it takes a couple of days to for us to get back to you it is literally just the two of us answering every question that you guys send in and every dm you send in or every email you send in, it is just the two of us responding to them. So there might be a little bit of delay um, just so that if anyone gets a little uh, annoyed that we're not responding or anything.
1: And then some orders too that have come in. Uh, we've got some sock orders and sticker orders that I can't fulfill right now because I don't have any of our inventory on hand because I'm still quarantined. Um, so we either get refunds out to you or contact you as soon as possible just mm-hmm. to let uh, let you know that in the next couple of weeks we'll be able to fulfill that. But. Yeah. Uh, as of right now, I'm running a lot personal inventory that I took out here because I didn't plan on being out here for two months.
0: But, yeah, I think that'll, we'll wrap up with that for this week. Um, and we will catch you guys next time. See ya. <laughs> Later.